Let's open the Scriptures this afternoon to the letter of Paul to the Colossians. In the first place, we're going to read from Colossians chapter 1. As mentioned in the prayer, the subject matter is the doctrine of Scripture concerning the government of the church. What does the Lord teach about the government of His church? So let's begin in Colossians 1, verse 15. Speaking here about the Lord Jesus Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent, for in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're actually going to start at the end of chapter 2. In chapter 3, Paul goes on to speak about the office of overseer and deacon, which figures into the governing, the governing of the church. But let's start at chapter 2, verse 8, where he also says something about who may speak in the church. Verse 8 of chapter 2, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, 
with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. There's one more passage I'd like to read, just a few verses from Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to start at verse 11. And the Apostle Paul begins to speak about the grace given to every church member uh, according to the measure of Christ's gift. So Christ is the gift giver. And then we pick it up in verse 11. And He, that's Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love." Please turn with me in the Book of Praise to page 512, where the Bible's teaching about the government of the church is summarized as part of our confession. Article 30, we believe that this true church must be governed according to the spiritual order which our Lord has taught us in His Word. There should be ministers or pastors to preach the Word of God and to administer the sacraments. There should also be elders and deacons who, together with the pastors, form the council of the church. By these means, they preserve the true religion. They see to it that the true doctrine takes its course. 
that evil men are disciplined in a spiritual way and are restrained, and also that the poor and all the afflicted are helped and comforted according to their need. By these means, everything will be done well and in good order when faithful men are chosen in agreement with the rule that the Apostle Paul gave to Timothy. So far then, our reading and our confession. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, every society, every group of people that wants to stay together as a group, they need some form of governing structure. Doesn't matter the group, whether it's a school society or a sports team, whether it's a play group for toddlers or a chess club, there always in these groups need to be basic rules for people to follow. Otherwise, everyone will end up just doing their own thing and the group will soon fall apart. Going into any organization, you need to know what is expected of you, what's expected of others. You need to know who's in charge. You need to know how to handle disagreements if they should arise. How do you resolve difficulties inside this organization? Who do you go to? Who will be the referee? Who will be the moderator or the mediator? Who and how is order maintained? That's in every society, every group. And it's no different in the church. The church, too, needs to be governed. Decisions have to be made about many things, how we're going to worship, when we're going to worship, how we're going to function as church, the kinds of things we're going to do or not do. Here in church, too, we need to know who's in charge. We need to know what is expected of church members. And now the question before us is, how are we supposed to arrive at this governing structure? Do we set out by trial and error to figure it out? Is there more than one way to govern the church? In a few months, hopefully, the Lord willing, we will ordain new elders and deacons to serve in this congregation. Is that even necessary? Lots of churches out there, they, they don't have elders, they don't have deacons. What are we supposed to think of that? We're going to answer some of these questions, at least, I hope, as I bring to you this word of the Lord under this theme, how should Christ's church be governed? How should Christ's church be governed? We'll take a look at the guide for government, the officers for government, and the blessings of government. Well, our confession in Article 30 begins with a, a fairly clear and forceful statement, we believe that this true church must be governed according to the spiritual order which our Lord has taught us in His Word. Let's start with that expression, this true church, that hooks back into the earlier articles on the church, going back to 29 and even going back to uh, earlier than that, but 29 is the most recent. We've been busy speaking about that in recent weeks, this true church, as distinguished from the various sects, you know, the smaller groups 
of, of Christian believers that go off on their own following a peculiar teaching or of one kind or another. And then there's the distinction over against the false church. We also recall that this true church is nothing other than the Catholic Church that we began to dis, uh, confess in Article 27. The Catholic Church, the worldwide church, is the church that's being gathered by Christ in assemblies here and there and everywhere all over the globe, assemblies which can be identified as true churches by the marks of the true church, namely the pure preaching the pure administration of the sacraments, and the pure exercise of church discipline. If you meet a Christian group that has those marks, you find the, the true church. And now it follows that this, this one Catholic church of Jesus Christ and all these various assemblies, it also must be governed according to the will of that same Christ. And that makes sense, right? On a number of levels. I mean, church government, it, it flows quite naturally out of the church's identifying marks. Article 29 puts it very succinctly. In short, the true church governs itself according to the pure word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it. The church, we confess, it governs itself. It guides itself. It rules itself according to the Word of God and nothing else. If the church has to have faithful preaching, if the church has to administer the sacraments properly, if the church has to discipline its members properly, then there has to be some kind of governing structure to make sure that happens, to allow and to enable and to oversee it. You can think, for example, of the many evangelical churches where there is no particular governing structure with respect to discipline. There's nothing in place to discipline a member according to the Bible's directives. So in many such churches, people can attend on Sunday, they're welcome to attend, they're encouraged to attend, but there's very little or no consequence if it becomes known that such a person is living a sinful life. They might receive a verbal exhortation, but no action is taken, no step of discipline is applied. Many of these assemblies, they miss the mark of pure discipline because they have neglected to establish the government of the church according to the, the Word of God. That's really the bottom line. The true church governs itself according to what God says in His Word. That's a principle that we, we need to live by, we should live by. The people of Christ should always be asking, what does our Lord want us to do? How does Christ, our shepherd, want us to govern his sheep? You know, this is a major question or a major principle that a lot of people seem to miss or maybe they ignore it. A lot of people think that running the church is just up to the people. You figure it out. You can do it this way or that way or the other way. But that is not what the Bible says. 
We read in Colossians 1, which describes the Lord Jesus as, first of all, ruler supreme over all of creation. And then it calls him the head of the body, the church. He's the head of the church. The church does not belong to the people. It belongs to the head. It belongs to the Lord. We call Jesus our Lord. That means our master. We identify ourselves as servants. Servants don't make decisions about running the thing. The Lord does. Lord means boss, if you will. Jesus is boss. And so, brothers and sisters, this is very, very practical for each and every one of us, whether as individual Christians or collectively as church, we need to learn to ask in every circumstance, what would my Lord, Jesus Christ, what would my Lord have me do in this circumstance? What would our Master have us do collectively as church? What does our Lord instruct us in His Word? What are the principles of Scripture? What are His commands? What are the examples He lays out for us? And when it comes to government of the church, as we read from 1 Timothy 3, the Lord teaches very plainly that in the church we are to appoint elders and deacons, and from Ephesians 4, also we read about pastors or teachers, and those three are to govern the church. It's as clear as a bell in 1 Timothy 3. You can find it in Titus 1 about elders as well, and yet how many assemblies calling themselves church have no use for elders, do not have deacons, but instead hire or elect a board and the board does the hiring and the firing of the pastors according to the wishes of the congregation. That is the general model in independent churches all through our communities. At the end of 1 Timothy 2, the Holy Spirit makes it very clear that in Christ's church, a woman is not permitted to exercise authority over a man. And yet, how many so-called churches appoint female pastors, female elders, female deacons in positions of authority over men? If you want to know whether a group of Christians is really the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ, an easy thing to check first off is their governing structure. Because very quickly, it will tell you whether they are governing themselves in accordance with the Word of God or with their own ideas. And God's Word speaks so very clearly that His church is to have within it three kinds of office bearers to govern the sheep. There's no question that, as Colossians says, the Lord Himself is the head of the church. He is the shepherd. And he does govern the church as mighty king in heaven on the throne at his Father's right hand. And if the Lord Jesus had wanted to, let's just think about this for a moment, if he had wanted to, he could have governed the church here on earth directly from that throne without any need for a pastor or elders or deacons. 
right? Just, let's just think that through for a moment. The Lord Jesus could do that, right? He doesn't need me and doesn't need the elders and deacons. If he had chosen otherwise, he could have done that. He could have sent out his word together with his Holy Spirit so powerfully just to go independently to work in the hearts of his elect in some kind of other way than he does now. He could have gathered in his sheep in some other fashion than he does now. But that is not the will of Christ. The Scriptures make this very plain. It is the will of the Lord Jesus to use weak men like me and the elders and the deacons, sinful, weak individuals, to exercise his care and rule over his people. Article 30 mentions the men and their offices in the second sentence. There should also be elders and deacons who together with the pastors form the council of the church. So all three office is and office bearers, they, they together make the council, which is really a term for the general governing body of the church. That's why we have on the, the door outside in the, in the hallway there a sign council on that room door. Each of those three offices is in charge of a particular area of church life. So they each contribute to the government of the church. The minister is in charge of the preaching, teaching. The elders are in charge of the discipline. The deacons are in charge of the ministry of mercy. As a pastor, I'm not in charge of the ministry of mercy. I defer to the deacons. The elders defer to the deacons. The deacons are not in charge of the preaching. They defer to the minister and so on. All three together form the governing body. Just like a, a city council is a governing body, so the church council is a governing body, and the church council meets to discuss and decide on such things as the church budget. We were busy with that this past Thursday as council. In time, we nominate office bearers. We approve or review at least the decisions of major assemblies and anything to do let's say broadly speaking with the government of the church we handle that as a council now there's been some confusion over this because we often also speak of something called the consistory what is that and how does it relate to the council is counsel the same as consistory? Well, the answer to that is no. The consistory is described in our church order as simply the body of elders together with the minister. Minister is a, an elder who set aside for teaching, so we call him a teaching elder, pastor, teaching elder. So the consistory does not include the deacons. The consistory is the, the ruling body of the church with respect to all spiritual matters. The one that supervises the doctrine and life of all members, including the office bearers. Ministers and deacons have authority in their respective offices, but that authority is always subject to and answerable to the authority of the elders. So, for example, ministers like myself are given authority to preach and teach the Scriptures, the doctrine of Scripture, but the elders oversee 
me and any other minister that would serve here. They oversee the minister to ensure that the preaching and teaching is faithful. If the minister is unfaithful in his work, it will be the elders who will address him and admonish him and work with him to correct. The same goes with the deacons. The deacons have authority over the ministry of mercy, but the elders oversee that too to ensure that the ministry of mercy is being done faithfully. If the deacons would ever be unfaithful in their task, it would be the elders who would admonish them about that. I want to be really, really clear. There's always, amongst all three offices in the church, a high degree of cooperation and respect and, and love for one another and harmony. Elders are not in the council room throwing their weight around. You should not have that picture at all. Elders don't lord it over the deacons. Elders don't lord it over the minister. And yet, at the end of the day, if something goes wrong with the minister's work, faithful, unfaithfulness, or the deacon's work, unfaithfulness, the buck stops with the elders. They're the ones that have to call them to account. It's the elders who apply discipline and work that out. Now, the point of all of this is that these offices are not the invention of people. It wasn't clever men who made this up long ago. No, this is the Lord Jesus' creation. Paul teaches that so clearly in Ephesians 1. Speaking of Christ, he says, and Christ gave the apostles. Christ gave the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers. He gave them to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So let's just be super clear in our minds. It is Jesus who appointed first the apostles to continue His work after Him, to preach and teach and discipline. And it was also this same Jesus Christ who through the apostles, appointed shepherds and teachers in every congregation. You can read that in the book of Acts. We normally call the shepherds elders. The Bible uses a number of different names. Shepherds, elders, bishops, overseers, all refer to the same office, as well as what we call ministers or teaching elders. Those offices were appointed in every church, and also the deacons too. We know that from Philippians 1. 1 Timothy 3, it was Christ who through the apostles in Jerusalem first appointed those initial seven deacons to serve the needs of the widows. So every church of Christ, every true church of Christ must have these three offices in it. This is not my opinion, it's the will of the Lord. It's right there in Scripture. And this is so very encouraging, even necessary for the existing elders and deacons and pastor here in this congregation to keep this in mind, that we have our jobs at the will of Christ, at the direction of Christ. The eldership, the deaconry, the ministry are all gifts from the ascended Lord. So 
that makes him responsible for you being in your office, brothers, me being in my office at this moment. Of course, it's true. The congregation was involved, and the council was involved in selecting you as elders and deacons, just like Christ used Paul and the congregations to elect and choose certain men to serve in those offices in the book of Acts. But it's equally true that Christ was busy through His Spirit through all of us, through the membership of the church, to bring about elders and deacons at this moment in Ancaster's history. So if you are an elder, if you're a deacon right now, or me as a pastor, it's not random. We as church call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we did this last spring. We'll do it again, the Lord willing, this spring. We call upon Him in prayer throughout the election process. Lord, bless this whole process. Bless the nominations. Bless the choosing that goes on. And so we believe that the outcome of the process is the Lord's will. That means, brothers deacons and elders and myself, we can lean on this same Lord to help us fulfill our tasks because those tasks are not easy, are they? When we need wisdom and we need it, and we ask Him for it, He will give it. As He's promised in James 1, when we ask for patience, when we ask for strength, when we ask for a heart filled with compassion and love and mercy toward the members of the church, the risen Christ will send it. The ascended and reigning Lord Jesus Christ, He's, he's busy governing Ancaster Church through your hands, my hands too, brothers, elders, deacons, so by all means, lean upon Him for everything you need. And remember, too, what we're doing. What your goal is as shepherd or as deacon. Ephesians 4 fills that out for us. That Christ gave these office bearers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, he gives office bearers to help prepare the rest of us for works of service. It is not that the elders and deacons by themselves have to do all the work in the church, far from it. Elders and deacons and minister were meant to be catalysts, guides, promoters, men who both serve and who ignite service in the hearts of everyone in the church. So brothers, elders and deacons, as, as you and I, we visit church members, we, we find out where they're at in their walk with the Lord, and then we encourage them in that, and through discussion and conversation and instruction and kindly exhortation, we help prepare them for further service. That's Ephesians 4.12. You can say that office bearers make service calls in the family of God to help members do their duty in the church and in the kingdom so that the whole church is built up. Everybody's working. 
So you go, brothers, to encourage, and you go to instruct, and you go to admonish and discipline wherever that is needed so that every member will more fully, more eagerly than before pursue the upbuilding of the church. And in our service calls, the Lord gives us tools to use. We use His Word and we use prayer. That comes out, at least in part, in answer 30, Article 30's description of what these office bearers do in the church. And I quote, by these means they preserve the true religion. And then follows a list. And uh, the list runs parallel to the three offices. First up, they see to it that the true doctrine takes its course. That's the task mainly of the minister's preachers. Then, secondly, that evil men are disciplined in a spiritual way and are restrained. That's the task of the elders. And in the third place, that the poor and all the afflicted are helped and comforted according to their need. That's the deacon's task. Now, obviously, that's not a complete task description of each office, but it concentrates on what's unique to each one. And you can see that each one is centered upon, based upon the Word of God. Let's just walk through them. The minister's task, he's got to proclaim from the pulpit and explain in the classroom and from house to house the teaching of Scripture. Maybe that's the easiest one to see it in. If I don't bring you the Word, brothers and sisters, I'm not doing my job, and you should call me on it. And the elders should call me on it. The elders, they must discipline we confess, in a spiritual way. So that's quite opposite to the physical way of, say, the police force might discipline in our country. They might arrest a person, even forcefully, put him in handcuffs, take him into jail. Elders never do that. But they come to the membership or members to speak the word, a word of warning, a word of correction, a word of instruction, recalling for the member both God's promises and God's demands, urging them, pleading with them not to follow their own will, but to obey God's will. And if they refuse to obey, then they take steps of discipline, but it's never physically done. And what about the deacons? The deacons must help and comfort the poor and the afflicted. They've got to comfort the poor. Where's that comfort going to come from if it doesn't come from the promises of God's Word? Yes, the deacons will take the financial gifts that we all give as congregation, and they will bring that physical aid to those in need. But the deacons don't just drop off a check and say, see you later. The deacons don't just pay the occasional bill. Oh, no, this is spiritual work. They make a pastoral visit. They encourage those who are in need. They speak to them about the promises of God's Word. They comfort with Scripture. They bring the needs of the individual or family to God in prayer. And they, they encourage also with fellowship. It's not a business transaction. It's a pastoral matter. 
Can you see in all of this, brothers and sisters, the, the design of the Good Shepherd? How does the Lord Jesus, the Lord of the church, how does He meet the needs of His people? How does the King govern His citizens? Primarily through His Word. He appoints men into three different offices to guide, to tend, to comfort His people with His Word. And His Word has power in it. Right? You have to just think of what the Word of God has accomplished in the history of the world. Remember how the Word of God created the world. Right? We wouldn't even be here if God had not said, let there be light, and let there be this, and let there be that. His Word creates. So His Word has inherent power, and then He sends His Spirit along with His Word. We're talking double power. Power to do what exactly? Whatever is needed. Change hearts. Direct lives. Lift up spirits. God's Word, it convinces. It convicts. It brings joy. It brings gladness. It brings peace. It brings comfort. It brings, brings strength and courage like we saw this morning. God's Word is food for our souls. He fills His office bearers with His Spirit. He equips them with His gifts so that they will go out and correctly and wisely and fittingly take His Word and apply it to His people according to their need so that the entire congregation will hear the voice of the Good Shepherd. That's the only voice the sheep want to hear, right? John 10 that's the only voice the true church will permit to ring out in her midst. And that's the only voice that will bring great blessing to the flock. Let the voice of the shepherd be heard. Let his word ring out. Article 30 mentions this blessing in its closing statement. By these means, everything will be done well and in good order when faithful men are chosen in agreement with the rule that the Apostle Paul gave to Timothy. When we listen to the Good Shepherd, to the Word of the Lord, and set up government of the church according to His Word, trusting in Him, we can expect the Lord to bless. We can expect Him to cause things to go well and to flourish. Not that church government will always be easy because... We're all sinners, and that will always create some level of difficulty. But under God's blessing, the difficulties can be managed for the upbuilding of the congregation and the honor of the Good Shepherd. Compare this biblical form of church government to other forms of church government, like the Roman Catholic hierarchy, for example, where you've got the Pope at the top, and, and the cardinals and the archbishops and the bishops and the priests all the way down to the lowly deacon at the bottom. They don't even have elders in their structure. So 1 Timothy 3 is ignored. In the Roman church, too, discipline is almost non-existent these days. The flock is hardly visited by the priests. 
And the word of Christ is obscured and hidden by so much baggage and false teaching. It's the voice of the shepherd is barely heard there, if at all. Or take the opposite form of government that you find in some Baptistic, independent, evangelical churches, the democratic form. In that model, the congregation holds the power. They, it's ruled by the people, democracy. The vote of the congregation, majority vote, carries the day full stop. If the majority wants to hire a minister, he's hired. If they tire of him and they want to fire him, he's fired. There's little consideration given to whether he's faithful to the word. There's no consultation with neighboring churches about whether dismissing a minister is a good move which pleases the Lord. They just go by the will of the majority. Or take another approach, the free-floating approach of the Anabaptists of the Reformation period, still found today among the Hutterites and the Amish. You can find it amongst the Quakers too, where they have no office bearers at all where individual men felt moved by the Holy Spirit would, would simply stand up in their assemblies and speak a word of exhortation just by the prompting of whatever they feel in their hearts. No training, no oversight, no congregational approval or consent. Any charismatic preacher or speaker could run away with the leadership of the congregation and history is filled with many Anabaptist sects going off the deep end because of a radical leader. Various forms of unbiblical church government take those believers down bad paths that lead to ungodly things. It's only when we follow Christ's rules that godly order and peace can come. Only by choosing and appointing men to the three offices given by Christ to teach, to guide, and to care for His church. Only by ensuring that these men are ready, that they have the qualifications for those tasks, that they're able to do these tasks faithfully, then the true church will experience good government. Why? Because then the voice of the Good Shepherd will ring faithfully from all sides, from the pulpit, in the home visits, in the deacon visits. You'll hear the Good Shepherd speaking because they'll bring the Word. And when the voice of the Shepherd is sounding on all sides, then the blessing of the Shepherd will flow from all sides. Amen. Amen.